We are reading from Psalm 2. Say Psalm 2. Psalm 2. <laughs> Verses 1 to 12. 1 to 12. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rules, rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with the fear and rejoice, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I don't know, it's a, one of those anecdotes. Um, I think it was Fred Rogers, or Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and somebody was complimenting Fred on what a great dancer he was. And he said, yeah, and Ginger does it all backwards and in heels. And I was thinking of that a little bit. We're reading the scripture, and you, know, you get up and read, and if you're holding a toddler at the time, that's almost like doing it backwards and in heels. This will be the final service, I think, Lord willing, in the series that we began earlier in the summer, Lord Teach Us to Pray, which then turned into a series on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Last week, we were talking about how we stand and how we stand best when we're on our knees. We stand best when we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and submit ourselves to him, resisting the devil in the doing of those things, knowing that as we do, the devil will flee from us. I almost entitled the sermon this morning, How We Win, because that's really kind of where I want to go with this. And then I thought, no, because it's not really us. It's not we who win. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who has triumphed over death and hell and Satan and the world and has accomplished our victory for us through his death on the cross. So it's not how we win. It's how Jesus won. And how Jesus won is expressed in that title that I drew from the third stanza of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall take Satan out of this picture, will end sin, will accomplish all that God has planned to accomplish, all that God has purchased for his people in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. But I want to talk, before we get to Psalm 2, a little bit about this subject of humbling ourselves before the Lord. We know that this is an essential part of spiritual warfare. Submit to God, as I said just a moment ago. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. The devil will flee from you. There's no sense in which we can take any part of that statement and claim it as some sort of a promise or something from God that allows us to say, well, the devil will flee from me because I'm a Christian, so it's just I walk into the room and the devil runs out. Or the devil will flee from me if I resist him by 
claiming authority over him and making a declaration, Satan, and I've heard people do this, and it's frightening, as we'll see in just a moment. Satan, you're stupid. Just leave. Go away. Leave me alone. It starts with submit to God. It starts with understanding who we are before God in Christ, and going to him on our knees, humbling ourselves, seeking his face, seeking his will, committing ourselves to obedience, and resisting the devil in that way. As Jesus did, we saw, when Satan came and he said, it, you, you must be very hungry. Why don't you just command that these stones be made bread? And Jesus, who was in complete submission to the Father at all times and in all places, turns to Satan. And he says, no, no. I'm not listening to you. I'm not doing what you say because God said it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we are in this spiritual warfare and a big piece of this. The first step, I believe, is us humbling ourselves before God. To sort of give a reference for that, I'd like to call your attention to the archangel Michael who appears in several passages of scripture in the Old Testament and in the New. And every time we see Michael, we see him not only as a mighty angel, the exact opposite of pretty much every picture of angels you have ever seen anywhere in your entire life. If you ever had any of those precious moments, angels, don't be deceived. Angels are not like that. And Michael is portrayed not only as a mighty angel, but he is portrayed as a warrior angel who contends for and with the people of God. And one such occasion where we see that in scriptures in Revelation chapter 12, the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, the one that we are engaged with in this spiritual warfare, had undertaken to devour the promised son the seed of the woman, the redeemer who would overcome and crush Satan's authority once and for all. And so as the woman is in labor about to give birth, the dragon is waiting, wanting to catch her child in his jaws metaphorically and kill him. But when the woman gave birth, the child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then we're told in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon... And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And just a couple of verses later, this event is given a refrain. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe. To you, O earth and sea, that's the world of the Jews and world of the Gentiles in Revelation lingo. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. First then, of two things here, this is the context for what we often call spiritual warfare. The devil went off to make war with the rest of the offspring of the woman. That's the people of God. That's us. That's the church. And that's why Peter wrote, therefore be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Peter exhorted his readers, he exhorted the church to do this because Satan, through the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, is at war with the people of God. It is a declared war. He has made his purpose known and we are soldiers who are engaged in that declared war. It's not like we're walking through this beautiful idyllic world and there are demonic terrorists out there who are occasionally going to jump us. We are in a battle. We are in war. We are in a struggle. And Peter says, be aware of that. Be alert. Because Satan is looking for people to devour. And his wrath is great. But notice, in that depiction of Michael, the archangel in John's vision, he appears there as a warrior leading the armies of heaven in battle against the dragon. And yet in the book of Jude, that that little one-chapter book that comes before Revelation, when the author is urging his readers to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, noting that this needs to happen because certain men have crept in unnoticed, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and in so doing deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude takes note that these dreamers, as he calls them, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And to make his point about how, this bad, how bad this is, he went on to say that even the archangel Michael, when he was contending with the devil, so That Michael that we saw in the book of Revelation chapter 12, when he was contending with the devil, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I don't have this in the manuscript, but Jude goes on to say that people who try to stand in their own strength, who try to exert their own authority over Satan are destroyed by what they do not understand. Michael the archangel did not presume, he did not dare to contend with the devil in his own strength. He called on the Lord to intervene and to rebuke Satan. This is the nature of our warfare too. Paul said we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, not to minimize the battle, not to make us think, well, it's okay, I can can go through my day tomorrow and I'm not going to have to face flesh and blood adversaries who might hurt me. I'll just run into some spiritual stuff and that'll be okay. Jesus said exactly the opposite. He said, don't be afraid of the people who can hurt your body. Not even the people who can kill you. Don't worry about them. Be afraid of the one, God, who can cast body and soul into hell. Fear him. Paul's not minimizing the nature, the gravity of spiritual warfare when he says that it is spiritual. He's actually maximizing it so that we can understand that we are not to depend on ourselves, so that we can understand that by ourselves we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment. I read that somewhere, Heidelberg Catechism, I think, for a moment. You cannot stand in this spiritual battle for as much as a moment in your own strength. You have to submit to God. You have to humble yourself. You have to be determined to let him lead and be Lord. 
We need the Lord to uphold us and make us strong. The catechism goes on so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. And that is why and that is how we must first submit to God if we are to resist the devil. We must humble ourselves under his mighty hand. We must acknowledge our weakness and inability. We must trust in him and him alone and call upon his name. We must say, the Lord rebuke you. It is written. Whatever that is that we need to bring into that moment. And that's where, by the grace of God, in this humbling ourselves before him, that's where salvation begins and it never changes. Our sanctification is dependent on that same spirit of recognizing that in our own strength, we can do nothing. As the Apostle Paul said, that there is nothing good that dwells in me, that is in my flesh. But in Christ and through the spirit of Christ, I can stand and not go down to defeat or to despair in this struggle. Our foe is more powerful than we are. Arguably, our foe is more powerful than the archangel Michael. But while we are in this battle, the battle is not ours. The battle is not up to us, as Martin Luther wrote, and we will sing in just a little while. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And his doom is as certain as the salvation that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. One little word, Luther said, shall fell him. This was also the conclusion of our text this morning from Psalm 2, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But to get us to that point, to get us to that conclusion, the psalmist began with a question, and it's a good question. Why do the nations rage? My emphasis there. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They do. We know they do. You don't have to read much news to know that. Why do they do that, given that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, according to the psalm that just preceded this one, but the way of the wicked will perish? So why do the nations rage? Why do they plot? Why do they scheme? Why do they imagine vain things? And I suppose it is as Jesus said, and this is the judgment, light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So they rage. They vent their anger at God and at Jesus Christ, their Lord, creator, and sustainer. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And this looks different at different times and places in history and culture. And we could go back but we would not have time to the old covenant scriptures and see numerous occasions when the kings of the literal nations around about Israel were gathering together and taking counsel together against the Lord God, Yahweh, and against his anointed King David and some of his sons. We could look at those things. How they plotted together. They made their battle plans. They raised their armies to go up against the city and the people of God. 
But I think it would be better for us to look closer to home, which is to say you can turn on your TV or your computer and see it right there. There's an aspect of this which is visible in the current conflicts in Ukraine and in Israel and many places in the world, too numerous to name them all. But these are the fruit, not the root. When the kings, presidents, and prime ministers of the nations take counsel together against the Lord, it always ends in violence somewhere. That's what Satan does. That is his program for humanity. God gave life and peace. Satan comes along and brings death and destruction and division and devastation. That's who he is. That's what he does. And when we see war in the world, whether it's in Ukraine or in Israel, whether we favor one of the sides of combatants over another or not, it really doesn't make any difference. All of that is the fruit of people whose hearts are in rebellion against the Lord God. And we see those wars, and in many cases, I think this is what the psalmist is talking about in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, if anyone has ever tried to get you to think that what's happening here in Psalm 2 is a promise of some kingdom in some faraway time and place where all of the nations are just going to bow before Jesus and he's going to rule over them. If that were the case, there would be no need for the rod of iron and there would be no need for this statement, you will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's how he works. Nations in rebellion against the Lord have always found it so and always will. We've noted almost every week lately righteousness which could be defined as people who listen to and obey and follow the way of the Lord, that exalts a nation. Its opposite, sin, is a reproach to any people. But to understand this taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, to get a picture of what it looks like, all we have to do is consider the words of verse 3. Because this is what they say. Those kings and governors and rulers who take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed say this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us shake off the yoke of God and of Christ, even though that yoke is easy and that burden is light. Let us cease and desist hearing and especially obeying the law of God. Let us make clear once and for all that we will not have this man, Jesus Christ, to reign over us. Now that sounds like freedom to the world. No one wants to bow the knee and acknowledge the authority and dominion of anyone over their life and their decision. But given that these counsels are spoken against the Lord and against his anointed, against our God and against Jesus Christ, this is not a call to glorious revolution, liberty and equality and freedom. This is cosmic treason, as the late R.C. Sproul used to say. This is mankind spitting in the face of the glorious God who made him and the glorious God whose image he bears. This is the kings and rulers, the presidents and prime ministers, the supreme court justices, ruling by fiat 
and declaring it legal to kill a child up to and in some cases after the last moment when that child emerges completely from the birth canal and guess that has been on the legislative agenda in some places. Infanticide. That is what it looks like to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed in one way. This is the Prime Minister of Canada decreeing a few years ago that anyone who wants to run in his party, including incumbent members of parliament, must vote pro-choice, which is to say pro-death, should the issue ever come up in the House of Commons. This is the government passing a bill, making it illegal for anyone to knowingly promote, and I quote, the myth... The myth that heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. When our government takes that on themselves to declare that our faith in the word of God is mythology, that is the kings of the earth and the rulers of the nations taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is the world we live in. And this is what that looks like. Still, this is not the end of the story or even the end of the psalm. The psalmist, probably David, goes on to say, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord will hold them. The Lord holds them in derision. I know that's not a common word anymore, but it's not something desirable. If God holds you in derision, that should be a very uncomfortable place to find yourself. God laughs at the futility of the impotent plans of these little tin dictators and governors and kings, whoever they are and wherever they may be found, whenever they say, we're going to cast off the yoke of God's law, and we're going to do what we think is right. Back last year, we had a short series in the book of Judges where we noted that the continual problem there is that people did what was right in their own eyes instead of doing what was right in the eyes of God. And when we plot and scheme to do these things, verses 5 and 6, then he, God, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And the point that the psalmist makes here is not God will come in glory and in fire to judge the earth. He will do that. There's plenty of other scriptures that speak of that. But even now, even here, the point that the psalmist makes when, he, when God speaks to the nations in his fury is, as for me, as for God... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I had a narrow application in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament times, what that is saying is that over all the kings and rulers of the earth, over the one who is described occasionally as the archon or the god of this age, over everyone, whatever their titles may be, is the one who reigns supreme in the heavens, Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And as I mentioned, this is not a promise of some far away, long off idyllic future. 
This is a declaration of current reality. Jesus Christ is Lord. Verses 7 and 8 say, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." In Acts chapter 13, the apostle Peter connected this promise to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection being the proof, the guarantee that Jesus is indeed the son, the one who's being referenced here in Psalm chapter 2. And as we've noted on more than one occasion, when Jesus Christ, the son of God, was raised from the dead, he did not neglect And he certainly did not forget to ask his father for the inheritance that was rightfully his. The inheritance that he had purchased by his blood. Nor did his father fail to keep his promise. God always, always keeps his promises. And just as certainly as Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. Just that certainly God has highly exalted him. Present tense, God has done that. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. If you are here today and you have knees, even if you don't, God is calling you to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth will be, maybe, no. All authority, that's all authority. That's all authority in heaven, and that is all authority on earth has been given to me. And in the book of Daniel, speaking of the ascension of Jesus, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. It was Jesus' favorite name for himself. And the son of man came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. This is what we celebrate on Ascension Day. And to him, to the Son of Man, to Jesus Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do I need to go on? Because I could. I could keep you here for the rest of the day with passages like that. Well, maybe one more in just a bit. For now, understand this in case I have not made it clear and in case it was not clear to you before you walked into this room, which I hope it was, Jesus Christ is Lord. That is not a mere creedal or baptismal formulation, something that we get people to say so that we can acknowledge that they have made profession of faith. It is that, but it is so much more than that. It is a living reality. It is a living hope. We look at the world with all of its turmoil and all of its trouble with these wars and 
the, the kidnappings and the rapes and all the things that are happening in Israel. And sometimes we tremble. And I assume that Linda and I are not the only ones here who have stopped on a couple of occasions after watching something online and said, what kind of world are our children and grandchildren going to have? Well, here's the answer. And this is a hill I am willing to die on. Our children and our grandchildren will have a world just like this one. A world over which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is Lord. A world in which they will be called just like they are in this one. They will be called by the word and spirit of God to turn to Christ in faith, to bow the knee and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our faith. This is our hope as we stand in this spiritual battle against the cunning schemes and the craftiness of the devil, the world, and even our own flesh. Jesus Christ is Lord. I said a couple of, maybe last week or the week before, that we need to have some targeted scriptures. When we are tempted, we need to be able to pull out that out of the sheath the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and say, but it is written, thou shalt fill in the blank for whatever your particular temptation may be. But if we don't, if we find ourselves coming up against something that we know is wrong, we must know that or we wouldn't experience it as a temptation, what we can always bring out of that sheath is, it is written, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I will seek his will and I will follow his will and I will do what he says to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord of heaven. And earth, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. He is Lord of the nations. He was given all dominions and nations and kingdoms. He is Lord over the kings and the rulers of this world. He is Lord over the church. He is Lord over politics and law. He is Lord over every aspect of our lives. Down to the most personal details, those things that we want to say in this day and age. Well, no one should have the right to tell us what to do in that room of the house. But Jesus Christ does, because Jesus Christ is Lord. And this should comfort us. Because it means he not only wants to, it means that he has been authorized by God and is able to work all things, even this spiritual battle where we so often find ourselves standing on wobbly legs. He is able to work all things together for our salvation and for the glory of our Father in heaven. And again, I'm tempted to ask, do we really believe this? I asked myself when I was writing this sermon, do we really Believe this. And we had better. Because Revelation 19, I said I would give you one more, and this is it. Revelation 19 reads, Then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
Now, some can argue about exactly what's in view here. I'm not worried about the timetable, and we can discuss that on another occasion. But according to the gospel, or according to John, Gospel of John, Part Two, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That's where we get that song, "Crown him with many crowns," because he is Lord of the nations. So he's wearing the crowns that belong to all of those nations. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That would be Jesus, by the way. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And that would be us. This glorious picture of the church of Jesus Christ. He goes forth to battle and we just follow. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And that would be his word. The sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And here's where this ties into Psalm 2. Because as the son of man goes forth to war we are told he will rule them with a rod of iron. Straight from Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We hear that sometimes at Christmas. The Messiah, we go to hear a performance of it and there's that magnificent choral piece King of kings, forever and ever, and Lord of lords, forever and ever. That is written on the thigh of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And when we sing in just a minute, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, That's the word. Jesus Christ, the word who is God and the sword that comes from his mouth, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's the word. And in the end, Satan and the nations and the people of this world, for all of our high opinions of ourselves, will not be able to stand before the one who is and was and always will be king of kings and lord of lords. And those who think they want to try, according to Psalm 1, will be like the chaff that the wind drives away. So the psalmist calls us to repentance, to salvation, and to grateful service. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, of the, of, o kings be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And what applies to the kings and rulers of this world applies to all of us, to those whom they rule. Serve the, the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Which we do when we submit to God when we turn to him in faith and repentance and we determine in the gratitude that we have for the salvation that is ours in Christ to live lives that are characterized 
by grace. We do when we resist the devil and we rejoice that having taken refuge in God, we have the promise that the devil will flee from us. Let's look to God in prayer. Father in heaven, it's easy for us to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. But apart from your grace, apart from your work in our lives, the work of your Holy Spirit, it's impossible for us to live it. So pour out your grace and spirit on your people today, that Father, we may not only hear the word, we may believe the word, we may receive it with joy. And Father, we may go out from here as doers of the word. Not forgetful hearers who deceive themselves, but doers of the word, who in all the words we speak and the deeds we do point to you, our Father in heaven, that you may receive all glory and honor and praise as we exalt the name of Jesus in which we pray. Amen.